Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, called the Negro National Anthem for more than a century, was written in Jacksonville. At any time you're in a personal challenge in your life, it can encourage you to keep moving. We'll continue our discussion about special issues of the Florida Historical Quarterly. I believe that the special issues in many ways are the lifeblood of the journal. And we'll visit the historic and endangered Cosmo community. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's the Jacksonville Children's Chorus with the Morehouse College Glee Club under the direction of Darren Daly performing the song Lift Every Voice and Sing. James Weldon Johnson wrote the lyrics to Lift Every Voice and Sing as a poem in 1900 to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Five years later, his brother, John Rosamond Johnson, set the poem to music. The song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, became so popular that in 1919, the NAACP named it the Negro National Anthem. James Weldon Johnson was born in Jacksonville in 1871, and John Rosamond Johnson followed two years later. Adonica Toller is museum administrator at the Ritz Theater Museum and describes the Jacksonville that the Johnson brothers lived in. Well, it was a combination of good and bad. Um, there was racial tension. However, moving to Jacksonville was like the thing to do after the Civil War. In fact, the Johnson brothers' father moved here in 1869, right after the Civil War, and he was a free black man from Virginia, moved here, met their mother, and they settled right here. And two years later, John James Oil and Johnson came along. So it was a combination of a place to come back to start over, um, and then there were still some racial tensions. In uh, his autobiography along this way, James talks about how uh, in some cases there were black and white um, mixes in public places at concerts and the like, but it was like a, a respectful tension there. But um, over a period of time, it, the tension rose. Jim Crow laws and blue laws started coming in more and more till he actually left officially right after the fire in 1901. 
James Weldon Johnson began spending time in New York City with his brother John, who was having success writing Broadway shows with Bob Cole. John Rosamond was already gone because he, was, he had gone off to Boston Conservatory. Um, John was a child prodigy, so he already knew music was his thing. Um, so he was already gone, and in the summer, John um, was in, when he was in New York, he was writing songs with Bob Cole, their partner, and then James would come in the summer and write with them. So in the summer, he would spend in New York doing all these wonderful things and come back and be principal at, at Stanton. The Johnson brothers both attended the Stanton School in Jacksonville, where James Weldon Johnson would later serve as principal. Adonica Toller. So Stanton School was one of the Freedmen Bureau schools built right after the Civil War. Um, it was built for all children, but white parents did not want their children going to school with black children, so that made it an all-black school, um, along with Union Academy in Gainesville. So they all started around about the same time educating black children, which was really controversial because during slave times, it was against the law for someone black to know how to read and write. So it was a little controversial about the school being there, but they moved forward. and. Even better for them, their mother actually was one of the teachers at the school. So we had some teachers from the North that helped uh, educate um, um, Mary Still, the brother of William Still, who was part of the Underground Railroad, was here. So we had some really um, the prominent people who were coming here to help educate um, those who didn't know how to read and write here in, in Jacksonville. James Weldon Johnson was a writer during the Harlem Renaissance in New York, served as an ambassador for Theodore Roosevelt, became a leader in the NAACP, and was a civil rights activist as well as an educator. While he was principal of Stanton, he became a lawyer, and he actually was the first black to officially pass the Florida Bar. So there were black lawyers who were practicing. Um, but most black lawyers at the time graduated from Howard University Law School. So since it's in the, in the United States Capitol, uh, it's a federal school, so a, law, a black lawyer could come and uh, practice wherever they settled. Um, but James was the first one to actually do the Florida um, bar, and uh, it was some controversy around it, but he passed anyway. So he was a lawyer and an educator, and he had a daily newspaper, so he was always doing something. Toller says that the success of the Johnson brothers began with their supportive parents, who were good role models, serving the community and fostering in their sons a love of the arts. So James was always interested in writing and writing about social justice. Um, once he decided to leave here, um, because he actually was almost hung because they thought he was sitting in the park with a white woman, um, that really sparred him on to go ahead and live in New York with John and, and be more focus more on his musical career and further going on to school at Columbia. Um, and there he became politically active. He became an ambassador to Venezuela and other countries, and that's where he met his, um, during that time, that is where he met his wife, Grace. Um, so he was moving all along, and then whenever he was in town, he was working with John and Bob, writing musicals for Broadway stage, and so he was always involved with social justice and enjoying the arts. 
John Rosamond Johnson demonstrated musical talent at a young age that led to a successful career composing operettas, Broadway musicals, and vaudeville songs. He was actually selected to be part of the first black opera company in America. Um, and the other Jacksonville resident, I have to throw that in there, is Eartha White. She happened to be up there be going to school um, when she was younger. Uh, there was a, uh, during the summer, she would travel with her mother Clara on the ships, who was a steward on the ships. But when it was time for her to come back to school one year, there was a yellow fever epidemic, so she couldn't get back into Jacksonville. So she went back to New York and finished her education. And she and John were selected to be part of the Oriental America organization. And they traveled singing classical music all over the country. And John Rosamond ended up being the pianist taking over. They actually were trained by Harry T. Burley, um, the acclaimed um, songwriter and gospel singer. And so his career just continued to evolve as well, that he was popular around the world. When he actually put uh, the words to lift every voice and sing to music, he was just coming back from one of his gigs in Europe. So he often was uh, the headliner in Paris, London, Germany. Um, he had a reputation, um, and he actually ran an opera house in London um, for o Oscar Hammerstein. The Ritz Theater Museum in Jacksonville displays documents, artifacts, and memorabilia associated with the song Lift Every Voice and Sing. For 20 years, automatronic robots have brought James Weldon Johnson and John Rosamond Johnson to life, voiced by Ossie Davis and Harry Burney. Lift every voice and sing. I composed those words in 1900, pacing our front porch while Rosalind worked on his musical setting. We wrote the song to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday, to be sung by a chorus of five unschooled children. We did not imagine then that the children of Jacksonville would keep singing the song, teaching it to others, until it was being sung in schools and churches throughout the South and elsewhere. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Jim, your words are magnificent. I only hope my music does them justice. Rosamond, your six years at the New England Conservatory have paid off admirably. As did your years at Atlanta University. Yes, in many ways. They opened my eyes to a much larger world, including some of its injustices. What the beauty of that song, the beauty and the sadness of the song, it really is a timeline of what enslaved Africans and free blacks experienced here in America. So it was of acknowledging the pain and the suffering, but the still moving forward and then the hope of things being better. And so just of what was happening in the civil rights movement, that song really rings true. It rings true that there is this problem we're having or we're in this awful situation, but it's gotta be better. We're gonna keep moving, we're gonna keep going. There's gotta be another opportunity for a better life. And so it is about admitting that you're in a tight spot, but let's keep moving. It can be better, we, got, we can't stop. But if we move forward, we can, uh, there, it can be a better opportunity if we make it, if we just keep going. 
And so it was still true to what was happening in the civil rights movement. I think it's still true now to what is happening here in America and other countries where people's human rights are being uh, violated. And it's a timeless piece. And I think that even though he wrote it as a poem, it was nice. It just did more. It meant more. It means more. And anytime you're in a personal challenge in your life, it can encourage you. Florida artist Augusta Savage created a 16-foot-tall sculpture for the 1939 World's Fair in New York that was inspired by the song Lift Every Voice and Sing. The sculpture depicted a human harp made up of an African-American chorus. The sculpture was done in plaster because Savage could not afford bronze. After the World's Fair, the large artwork was destroyed. Some smaller souvenir versions of the work survive, and one is on display at the Ritz Theater Museum. Adonica Toller. It's unfortunate that she did not enjoy financially her gifts, but her determination and her grit and her desire to share her knowledge. Um, she influenced Jacob Lawrence and Romir Bearden, so other artists who did have an opportunity to enjoy their acclaim before they uh, left this earth. So she was ahead of her time and the Johnson brothers and Augusta Savage and Zora Neale Hurston all had lived here at one point and they were all in New York at the same time. And so when she was uh, given the opportunity to do a piece for the New York World's Fair, and I believe she was one of the first, if not the first black artist to have that opportunity, she chose to create a piece called Lift Every Voice and Sing. We affectionately call it the harp, but the song is definitely the inspiration behind the harp. The song Lift Every Voice and Sing became even more popular during the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s and continues to inspire people around the world. There were two ladies from the Netherlands, barely could speak English. I showed them this exhibit. I, in fact, I mentioned, I'm gonna show you Lift Every Voice and Sing, and they sung it to me in Dutch. And they sung it like they were, they were like this, and they just was so happy, and they sung the whole thing. So it's amazing how people are touched by this song, and I share with students, I said, you, I said, this is a song, just think how 120 years later now, people are still touched by this song. What are you going to do that is going to touch people almost 120 years later after you're gone. What song, poem, book are you going to write? Um, what are you going to do that people are going to remember you and just get inspired by what you did? Darren Daly conducts the Jacksonville Children's Chorus and the Morehouse College Glee Club in this performance of Lift Every Voice and Sing by James Weldon Johnson and John Rosamond Johnson. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. 
Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find great books about Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, today we're continuing our discussion of special issues of the Florida Historical Quarterly. What do you think is the significance of special issue publication? I think it's tremendously important. I believe that the special issues in many ways are the lifeblood of the journal because of what they do. Historians are always in conversation with other historians. Their articles are part of that conversation. And when you put those articles together in a special issue, they introduce the conversations that are inspiring to other authors. So we have found that generally there's an uptick in the number of articles submitted after the publication of a special issue. It's not that they're arguing with what the, the special issue said, but they're approaching the topic from a slightly different perspective. And having seen that special issue, I think they're inspired to submit their article uh, for publication. Other scholars working on similar topics present their articles over the next several issues of the quarterly. And I think that is important for the ongoing progress of history, the history of Florida, but also for our readers to see and to connect those articles back to the ones that were in the special issue. We've talked about the 500th anniversary issue some. What has their impact been? It's been a a really interesting impact. I think in the long run, what will happen with those special issues is that they will be seen as a kind of snapshot of what historians thought about Florida history at that moment in time. So that I can imagine 50 years from now or 100 years from now, when we're at the 600th anniversary, uh, historians will, of Florida will look back and see what people thought at the 500th anniversary. So in some ways, it is a, a snapshot. It has also had an impact on history education. I know several professors who included the historiographic essays as part of their um, syllabus for graduate classes. And I can think that graduate students who are working on Florida history can read one of those historiographic essays and incorporate it into their work. And these 500th anniversary issues are collector's items, but have also inspired a very successful lecture series, right? Indeed, they have. So one of the things we decided to do uh, with the 500th anniversary issues was to create the Gerald Schaffner Lecture Series in Florida History and Culture. And that occurs every year at the University of Central Florida in October. It's free and open to the public. And we have a lot of people who come. Obviously, a lot of people who come from the university itself, but we've had high school classes who came. We have members of the community who come to those lectures. And they've changed a little bit over time. Uh, The first lectures uh, were the editors of the special issues. So we had our agenda in place for five years, and that was good. Since then, we have experimented a little bit. So each lecture has been a little bit different. 
the first one after the 500 anniversary was a lecture on Reconstruction. And instead of it being exactly a lecture, it was a panel discussion. Each member of the panel presented a short presentation, and then it was a discussion that went on. And we chose Reconstruction because Gerald Schaffner himself had written on Reconstruction, and he wrote such an influential book on Reconstruction that many still use it. It was the basis, or it was referred to in a number of subsequent books on Reconstruction. So it was very important. Um, the next year after that, we chose environmental history of Florida as our topic, and we broke it up into two groups. At noon, we had a traditional panel presentation on environmental history, and in the evening session, we had a kind of living room discussion, if you will. All of the, all of the scholars were sitting in easy chairs, and they were talking among themselves about environmental history in Florida. I have to say that was a very successful one. The audience really liked that way of doing things. And we had thought we might do that again for 2020. But 2020 was not the year when that was going to happen. We did have a very interesting, we had a lot of people who attended this event, but it was on Zoom. You had to come into a Zoom discussion. And we had one person who spoke, um, Martha Jones, who's a professor of history, an endowed professor of history from Johns Hopkins. And she had just published a book that was receiving uh, very good reviews. And she had been on lots of talk shows and those kinds of things. And the book was about African-American women and women's suffrage. And it was the anniversary of women's suffrage amendment. And uh, this one was very, very well received as well. So I'm not sure what we're going to do for 2021. Uh, I'm not sure what we'll be able to do for 2021. But we've kind of set a bar now. We're going to have to, we're going to have to up the ante a little bit. Well, hopefully things will be back to normal by October. Thanks, Connie. Thank you. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Pockets of Gullah Geechee culture still exist in Florida. One of them is the historic and endangered community of Cosmo. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation recently announced 2020's 11 to Save list of the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. The community of Cosmo, located near Jacksonville on the St. Johns River, is featured on 2020's 11 to Save list. Cosmo was established as a Gullah Geechee Freedmen community after the Civil War. The Gullah Geechee are descendants of Central and West African ancestors who arrived in America through the transatlantic slave trade and settled in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Florida. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He talked to me about the Gullah Geechee community of Cosmo. 
Cosmo is a small Gullah Geechee settlement in Duval County, uh, roughly about halfway between downtown Jacksonville and Jacksonville Beach or Mayport along the St. Johns River. It dates back to 1877 when James Bartley was given a 40-acre land grant, but the story goes back further than that. Florida's Gullah Geechee roots go back to a time before statehood. The Gullah Geechee arrived in Spanish Florida as slaves long before the United States took control of the territory in 1821. After the Civil War, freed slaves created communities along the coast of Florida, particularly in Nassau, Duval, and St. John's counties. After emancipation, many who were formerly enslaved in the area in this region settled and created this community. So, you know, Cosmo starts to develop in 1877, located at that point in time really far uh, miles and miles away. So it was an isolated community. The original settlers made their living by hunting, farming, crabbing, uh, harvesting oysters, as well as uh, fishing for mullet. So they basically lived off the land. However, in 1953, the Arlington Expressway was constructed and the Matthews Bridge was built. So that Matthews Bridge basically opened up this once isolated rural area to urban development and growth. For nearly a hundred years, Cosmo's geographic isolation enabled it to retain much of its Gullah Geechee heritage and its strong sense of community. But in the mid 20th century, growth and development threatened Cosmo's existence. By the 1970s, really in the 70s and 80s is when growth finally reached uh, this formal rural settlement, which back in the 19th century had its own railroad station, its own post office, its own school, but still isolated far from everything else. Once the expressway was built connecting the beach uh, to downtown and with the GI Bill encouraging suburban development and home mortgages for subdivisions, far outside of urban core, the former land surrounding this community was engulfed with auto-centric development. Even though development and the passage of time threatened to erase Cosmo, it's still home to many descendants of the community's Gullah Geechee founders. A few historic buildings remain, along with the Alexander Memorial United Methodist Church and the Palm Springs Cemetery, where generations of Cosmo residents have been laid to rest. Ennis Davis. Today, there's only a few pieces of that rural culture still left that date back to the 19th century. One being the Palm Springs Cemetery, so it was an archaeological site. Uh, that cemetery has been present since the 19th century. A portion of it is sitting under a golf course or a public park at this point, but much of the cemetery is still in use by descendants of the original Gullah settlers uh, who established the community. Uh, Alexander Memorial Church is still uh, in operation, it dates back to 1900, uh, and so that congregation there is largely comprised of family members from those who founded the community. By helping to tell the story of communities like Cosmo, you build support for their preservation, as well as the true telling of the story of their cultural legacy. And so by pointing at that Gullah Geechee cultural heritage is, is a way that Florida can help tell its story and strengthen support across the state for the preservation of the culture, the adaptive reuse of the architecture, uh, and the telling of those unique stories for the current generation and future generations to come. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to Save list, 
go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast or find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.